Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, it's been another crazy week. I don't know about you, but I keep feeling like life should be simpler, that I should have more of a lack of stuff to do while stuck at home. But I find the days always end up full, even if I can't always account for what I've done, or if I've even really accomplished anything. This week, here in my hometown of Saskatoon, finally saw the first real emergence of spring. We went from knee-high snow in the front yard last weekend to totally clear and mostly dry about midweek. As much as I enjoy working in the dungeon that is my home office and studio, being able to go outside and enjoy some sunshine sure makes a big difference. And I finally had a chance this week to spend some meaningful time outside set up the hammock, and spent a while reading in the yard. And aside from getting my very first sunburn of the year, yeah, apparently I was not at all prepared. It was glorious. We're just about to get into yard cleanup season in this part of the world. As much as that means the dirty, back-breaking labor of raking, bagging, trimming, and tilling, I have to admit, I am looking forward to it. Of course, that's partly because yard work, is one of my favorite times to catch up on my podcast listening. I found my library keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I haven't had the proper time to devote to diving into some of the newer ones I've added to the queue. 
most of which are just new to me. I think it's about time to remedy that. I hope you are managing to find some time for yourself, too. Seems more important than ever right now to be able to slow down and indulge in the little things, to fill your heart and distract your mind with a little of the good kind of horror. The fictional kind. But before we dive in, in case you don't follow us on social media and haven't heard, we've updated our tiers and rewards for Patreon members. We've got an amazing artist lined up to create some one-of-a-kind artwork for us that'll be available exclusively to Patreon supporters. Buttons, stickers, patches, postcards, t-shirts, you name it. We've got some incredibly cool and creepy things in the works. So, why not head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify to have a look at the new tiers and for updates on the swag as it gets developed. And, of course, if you feel like signing up to become a patron, we would be immensely grateful. With all of the craziness going on, I know times are tight, so I want to send a special thank you to everyone who supports us over on Patreon and through PayPal. As a free-to-listen-to podcast, I can't put into words how much it means that you choose to support our work financially. Because even though we're free to listen to, it does cost money to produce each episode. And you, our supporters, make it possible to deliver dark and disturbing tales deep into the ears of thousands of listeners every week. I also know there are some of you whose situation has changed in the last little while here, and you're no longer able to contribute. That is totally understandable. We appreciate all you've given and hope you continue to enjoy the show. This week, I'd like to give a special shout-out to O.D. Higre, who's been a tremendous supporter over on Patreon, and also an author we've featured on the show several times, most recently with the story Immersion Art, back in episode 381. If you haven't listened to his work, I'll put some links in the show notes so you can make sure you do. I'd also like to give a shout-out to another patron, Patrick Gray. Thank you for listening to the show, for your support, and for making the plunge and updating your sponsorship. You are helping to spread the darkness, and for that, we can't thank you enough. Speaking of darkness, I think it's time we cast a few shadows. Our episode this week is another long one, this time from fellow Canadian Dan Allen. Dan enjoys spending time off the grid in northern Ontario. His story, Above the Ceiling, originally published in Home Sweet Home by Millhaven Press, September 2018, is featured in Bards and Sages 2019 anthology of the year's best speculative fiction. His most popular publication to date, The Symphony of Zingara, can be found in the March 2019 edition of Pair Abnormal magazine. He is thrilled that The Basement has been chosen by Jeannie Rector to appear in the upcoming horror zine's Book of Ghost Stories. Also, later this year, watch for Where Only the Mosquitoes Sing, Monsters We Forget, Munchers, Halloween Party 2019, Footprints, Through Death's Door, Become the Beast, 
Eerie Tales, and Cornstalker, Fear of Clowns. Dan is currently working on the last chapter of his first novel, an epic tale spanning the decade before and after a devastating disaster that alters the lives of the people in Joshua Ridge. It's a nostalgic tale of young love and heartbreak, loaded with both real and supernatural horrors. You can visit Dan at danallenhorror.com and follow him on Facebook and Twitter as at danallenhorror. Or if you feel like getting in touch directly, you can write him at contact at danallenhorror.com. Children of the Night, join me for Dan Allen's Finkler, a Tales to Terrify original. March 9th, 1948. Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia. Operating Room. Seldom appreciated for his efforts and never recognized for his achievements, he attacks each new case with a passion best described as frenzied. This afternoon, he is in the operating room performing his third surgery of the day. I have some movement here. Please tighten the head harness. Dr. Finkler rolls back the eyelid with his thumb and selects a thin ice pick from the tray. The patient stirs, his neck muscles tense, and he swallows. Finkler focuses slightly above the tear duct and leans in to insert the metal tool. Steady now. The patient's pupils expand, and he tries to turn his head. His body convulses in an arch, but the gurney straps him, and a pair of hands force him down. Hold him! Finkler grabs a mallet and taps the ice pick into the eye socket. He relishes achieving critical depth. Too deep and the results of a transorbital lobotomy can cause catatonic brain damage, paralysis, and even death. He learns by trial and error, yet he often goes too far. His way of thinning the herd. Besides, he doesn't want the incurable to tarnish his statistics. An intern squints with each tap, her forehead scrunching into lines. And she looks away, but it's too late, and her legs wilt and wobble. A tray crashes to the floor, and she follows. Get her out of here. Finkler stays focused. He strikes hard, breaking through the thin bone at the back of the eye socket. The crunch echoes in the room and the tool slides easily into the soft brain tissue. Finkler sets the mallet down and grabs the pick, sawing back and forth in a rapid motion like a child shading in a drawing. Another twist and he severs the neural receptors. He withdraws the pick and notes with pride that the patient is still breathing. Nice work, everyone. You can finish up here, and I will see you tomorrow. The doctor strolls from the small room, confident in his methods. Neither of his remaining assistants applaud. Of course, the delicate intern has regained consciousness, and she is waiting in the hallway, questioning her career choice. The overweight orderly, who forgot to shave this morning, or was simply too lazy, doesn't care if the doctor mutilates his patients. 
He only wants to put in his hours and collect a paycheck. Nurse Kovach, however, has a hard time holding her tongue. Finkler is a monster, but to complain would surely cost her job. She watches him leave and slowly shakes her head. Her silence makes her complicit, and it's only a matter of time before she speaks out and jeopardizes everything. 3 p.m., Friday, March 12, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Long-term care activity room, South Wing. I probably did it. Mm-hmm, yep, I did, I did. No, nah, no way. No, 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 damn it, I didn't do it. You better tell him, Jimmy. Ain't nobody have no reason to believe me. It's up to you. You can set him straight. Peter is old, unshaven, and missing a front tooth. He wears his belt ridiculously tight, with at least six inches hanging out past the clasp, and it makes him look skinnier than what he is. He walks in a circle in the center of the room, and he changes direction each time he changes his mind. He's guilty about something, but no one knows for sure. P -p Pete's going Fonzie, Nurse Spinks, come see. P -p Pete's going Fonzie. Jimmy's lips tremble and creases form on his forehead when he struggles to get out words. Be cool, P. Be cool. Jimmy stutters just one of his impairments, and he is the worrywart of the group. The patients in the South Wing are long-term residents. Most have been institutionalized for their entire lives, and Jimmy is no different. What's up today? Is it a full moon or something? They've been acting up all afternoon. Nurse Spinks wears a freshly pressed uniform, her hair braided in a bun and not a wisp out of place. She shares shift duties with Ginny and perseveres better than most. Ginny is new and still believes there is hope. Heard we're getting a big snowstorm tonight. Ginny says it with a cheerfulness in her voice. To hear her, you would think the circus was coming to town. Somebody grunts and she glances over at Brody. He's sitting in his wheelchair, focused on something outside the window. He's been there all afternoon, just staring off into space. The sky is clear and it's hard to imagine any precipitation is on the way. That right? Snow? Spinks takes a peek at Jenny over the top of her glasses, perhaps to see if the girl is serious. Weatherman says we could get 30 inches. Honey, child, I've lived here my entire life and we don't ever get snow in Georgia. The nurse allows her southern accent to slip out. It never fails to amuse her charges. You're funny, Miss Spinks, putting on a show. Miss Spinks putting on a show. Exactamundo. Drool drips down Jimmy's chin. You're funny too, Jimmy. Now go wake up Victor. If he sleeps too long, he'll be up all night. Jimmy does a slow double foot shuffle when he walks. Truth be known, he has always walked that way. A buck tooth overbite is responsible for the drool. His substantial rear end is out of proportion and creates the illusion that he is always leaning forward. What do you think about this storm, Brody? You must be nearly the oldest person I know. Do you remember seeing snow before? What's that, Jenny? Brody has lost a foot of height and all his teeth. He makes an unnerving smacking sound when he talks. He wears a pirate's patch over the remains of his right eye, but his mind is still as sharp as a Ginsu blade. 
I asked if you recall a major blizzard ever hitting Georgia. Well, let's see now. Seems to me we got hit with one hell of a bastard back in 47 or 48. Head man at the time was this Finkler fella. He came home from the war with a new determination. Of course, I had already been over here 20 years by then and was more an unpaid employee than a patient. But you asked about the storm, didn't you? It was a dandy, all right. I don't know what was worse, the storm or Finkler. That son of a bitch was crazier than anyone. He had some backward ideas. March 12th, 1948. Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia. Operating Room. Finkler is clean-shaven, except for a thin, Fu Manchu-style mustache, and he wears round, wire-rimmed glasses that sit low on his nose. He is tall, perhaps even a little too much so, and he walks slightly bent over, self-conscious about his abnormal height. He has a habit of holding his hands limp-wristed in front of himself when he walks, and he never walks slow. It's always a mad scramble, like an earwig exposed from under a garbage can. Given the correct lighting and viewed from the perfect angle, Figler's shadow looks just like a praying mantis. Today, Finkler sits at a small desk and makes notes in his journal, recording the evidence to support his newest theory. He believes infection is the primary cause of insanity and the only way to prevent the spread of mental illness is surgery, be it amputation or otherwise. His findings are brilliant and he is proud of his groundbreaking research. Elise Clayton is scheduled next. Is the girl prepared for surgery? Dr. Finkler, may I make a suggestion? I have examined Miss Clayton myself and her fever is down. We can fight this with penicillin. Nurse Kovach dares to step between Finkler and the gurney. If she continues to defy his authority, she will surely experience the full force of his wrath. He looks at her from over top his glasses, subliminally asserting his superiority. Nonsense. If we are to cure these people, we must cut out the offending pestilence. Surgery is the path to wellness of the body and of the mind. But, doctor, she's only a child. Please, don't take her bladder. She won't survive. He slams down his journal and jabs a bony finger at Kovach's forehead. His nail is grotesquely long and, unlike most surgeons, his hand shakes. We are talking about the salvation of the patient's mind. You question my methods? Do you also question my results? Eight amputations this week alone. Eight patients who have a chance to regain their sanity. Elise is not yet sedated, and she scans the operating room. The pale gray walls and low lighting match her mood. She hasn't spoken, focusing only on the words of Dr. Finkler, and as she digests his intentions, her lower jaw quivers. Please, don't cut me, please. Her voice is softer than a coo of a dove and barely audible. Figler holds her chin between his lengthy fingers and crushes her cheeks. You want to get better, don't you, little miss? Of course you do. He lets go of her face and pokes the tip of her nose. 
When you wake up, you'll thank me, and next week we can move on to treating your nightmares. But I don't have nightmares, not really. I just don't like sleeping. Whatever, my child, I'll take care of you. You can count on that. Finkler places the mask over her face. Kovac, please stop the pump. He thrives on surgery and schedules as many as possible. Operations to prevent the spread of insanity and lobotomies to cure those he judges hopelessly insane. Finkler chooses a scalpel, changes his mind, picks up a larger one, and sweeps over her abdomen. A thin red line zippers open, separates, and expands. The cut is sufficient to ensure a swift evisceration. The girl dies within minutes. Finkler doesn't have the skills, nor does the asylum have the equipment needed to save her. Later, he records her name in his journal and a comment that she was incurable. His track record remains perfect. 6 p.m., Friday, March 12, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Long-term care activity room, South Wing. The sky has darkened two hours prematurely and raindrops play like a snare drum on the windows. Brody tilts his head to the side and closes his good eye. What's wrong? asked Jenny. I can't hear the children. Oh, Brody, we don't have children at this facility. You know that. Yeah, I reckon that's right. They're all gone now, but we had lots of them back in 48. The cribs on the third floor were full up night of the storm. For the life of me, I don't know why Finkler put them in those boxes. Sure, they called them cribs, but it's not like they had mattresses and pillows. They were just a bunch of cages made from wooden crates and scrap lumber. One thing is certain, they scared the shit out of the little ones. You could hear them raging and howling way down here on the first floor. Kids are sensitive, you know. Looking back on it, I figure they might have sensed something bad was about to happen. Jenny squeezes her eyes closed and covers her ears. Her imagination allows a haunting echo of screaming little voices. I think I hear them, Brody. So many tormented souls. It's absolutely crazy what they did here. C-c-c-crazy! Jenny said a b bad word. Cuckoo bananas, that's right. Cuckoo bananas. Bad man's going to get Nurse Jenny. Put you down in the tunnels. Nobody comes back. No whammies. Too bad. So sad. Jimmy blinks between each word when he talks. Oh, simmer down, Jimmy. The bad men are long gone. The wind picks up and the rain comes down hard and horizontal. The old building creaks and moans, as if protesting the foul weather. Bad man gone, yes sirree, Nurse Jenny says a bad man gone now, but snowman coming, coming back tonight. Jimmy hobbles over to the young nurse and hugs her. Joni love Chachi. What are you saying, Jim? I don't think I know that one. His eyes blink repetitively, and he stammers, stuck to get even a single word out. Jimmy loves Jenny. He finally blurts out and then relaxes, relieved to have found his voice. Oh, Jimmy, what would I ever do without you? And she hugs him again. Don't tell anyone, but I love you too. She whispers, making sure no one else hears. 
March 12, 1948, Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia, Infirmary. Finkler has a chip on his shoulder. It's something he desperately needs to prove to the world and to the medical profession that belittles him. He wasn't a great student, graduated near the bottom of his class and that, along with a few irregularities on his record, hinders his chances from an elite position at a major hospital. He is stuck in this backwater asylum and his only chance for betterment is to prove his brilliance through experimental research. Patients are simply specimens for his study and he has no compassion for them. How is everyone doing today? Figler makes his rounds, looking for signs of disease. Dirty linens lie on the floor, partially covering the dried blood stain from a week earlier. Spring flies circle around the sick, adding to their misery. The asylum is underfunded, and cleaning staff are conveniently comprised of repurposed patients. Finkler grabs a chart. Brody Wales, surgery to correct eye infection. He pauses to read the clipboard and flips the pages over as if he missed something. Well, 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 we have good news, Brody. Your bandages can come off tomorrow. Let's hope there are no further flare-ups. We wouldn't have much need for a blind hole digger now, would we? Brody keeps quiet. He's been around long enough to know better than to talk back, and he counts himself lucky to escape with only one less eye. Brody tends the gardens and the graves. Most of the latter are unmarked, and he has buried far too many of Finkler's mistakes to put himself in the line of fire. Finkler moves to the next chart. Virgil Kane. Alcoholism. Sent here only this week. Wound on left leg. He looks at the man on the cot and silently passes judgment. Let's have a look, shall we? Nurse Kovach expertly folds the bedsheet over to expose the leg, but nothing more. Finkler adjusts his glasses and leans in close. Oh my, that doesn't look very good, does it? You see these little red lines, Virgil? That's infection. Infection requires amputation. You're not taking my leg, you sick bastard. Virgil was sleeping off a three-day bender, snuggled amongst the garbage cans in a back alley. He doesn't fully understand where he is or how he got here, but he's sober now and thirsty. From the mouth of riffraff and scum, I can't stand alcoholics. They're the scourge of society. Figler makes a note on the chart. You don't drink, do you, Kovach? No, sir, not a drop, replies the nurse. He looks at her as if seeing her for the first time. Well, that's good. Yes, that's what the world needs. More people with some dignity and some, some self-respect. Thank you, sir. Did you know my mother was a drinker? No, how could you? She often left me alone to fend for myself. Now that woman, she needed to be institutionalized. I autopsied her myself after she passed. Her brain was diseased. Finkler closes his eyes and rubs his hand together, savoring the memory. Look, Doc, why don't you... Just let me go. I'll, I'll take my chances on the outside. I'm sure this thing will heal all right if I can just find some place to hole up for a while. Virgil pulls on the leather straps holding his wrists, but they don't give. Ha! 
your lack of control, your inability to resist your urges, and your penchant for the bottle has landed you here. You may be as big as a lumberjack, but you are a sick little man, and you're still resisting the program. Well, my friend, a couple of months with us, and you will no longer be a danger to yourself or others. You keep the hell away from me. You're the crazy one. Charming. Finkler hands the chart to an orderly. Sedate him and put him in the crib for the night. We'll amputate in the morning. He's a big and not sure if he'll fit in the box. The orderly bothered to shave today, but keeps his distance, afraid he himself may smell of stale beer. It wouldn't be the first time a staff member suddenly found themselves on the wrong side of a locked door. Bend him, vote him, squish him in. Cribs are meant to restrain, not to comfort. Finkler heads for the door. Behind him, Virgil spits and the projectile falls far short of its target. And find a gag for that animal. We don't want him biting anybody. Friday, March 12, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Long-term care activity room, South Wing. The original asylum is now called the Mental Health Institute, and the main building is over a hundred years old. The high ceiling, tall windows, and lack of air conditioning makes the place unbearably hot in the summer. The rest of the year it's damp and drafty. Today it's just plain cold and the chill is agitating Victor. Victor was born simple and his mother cared for him as best she could until the fever took her when he was still a boy. Folks were afraid of him thought he was possessed because of his odd behavior and his mother's own church signed him in. They honestly believed he was a demon because he was incapable of making eye contact. Victor's remaining hair covers his head in a patchwork of white stubble. His skin is thin enough to see his blue veins and in all his gears he has only been outside a handful of times. His hands squeeze together, left on top of right, then he switches again, and all the while he rocks back and forth to a steady rhythm only he can hear. His mouth stays open and a bizarre smile and his teeth stay clenched. Victor may well need psychiatric help now, but it's only because he's been here for the last 50 years. Peter paces the room, mumbling his confession and retracting it. He can't sit still, always moving, always talking. Peter was hit by a car when he was 12. He has a steel plate in his head and a couple dozen scars to prove it. Brain damage has trapped him forever with the intellect of a six-year-old. Like many of the long-term residents, Peter isn't insane. Never was. Problem is, he has been messed with by so many shrinks that now he thinks he's guilty of something. To him, he must be, even if he can't remember what it is. Why else would he be in here? Talk to me, Victor, old boy. You know me, right? I got the notion to twist your arm. Yeah, uncle. Come on. Yeah, uncle. Peter is bored and is playing too rough. He isn't a bully. He simply doesn't know any better. Seventeen, Pete. Seventeen. I know you, Pete. Hey, you're hurting me. Ah, you're hurting me. Victor stops rocking. His head bends back and his face goes red. 
Nurse Spinks, come quick. Peter's killing Victor. Pete's p p putting on a show. A real big shoe. He's a, a, a Ed Sullivan. Really big shoe. The wonderful Bobby and Cindy. They're going to lock him up this time. Yep, they're going to lock him up. Jimmy watches the theatrics like it's a television program, but fears Spinks too much to clap and cheer them on. Peter, y'all leave Victor alone and settle down or you're going into seclusion. You hear me? Spinks doesn't approve of horseplay. She isn't mean, but she does insist on order. Her talents are wasted here. She should have been a teacher. Okay, boss, Spinks. You know I wouldn't hurt my old buddy. I was only playing, you see. Come here, Vic. Let me make it better. Peter spreads his arms, exaggerating an embrace only reserved for loved ones. Don't hug him either. Keep your hands to yourself and go watch TV with Jimmy. Be cool, Pete. Be cool. Step into my office. Be cool, Fazamundo. Jimmy manages to get Peter's attention and they settle in front of the television. You all right, Victor? Jenny touches his head, gently rubbing the gray stubble, but he flinches and pulls away. Seventeen, Jenny. Seventeen, I know you. You're my cousin. Victor resumes his rocking and hand-wringing, no worse for the wear. Later, Jenny has a private moment with Nurse Spinks. Does everybody seem a little wound up to you? I mean, more than normal. No, not really, but my toes are cracking, and that usually means we're in for bad weather, so you might be right about a storm coming. I'm worried about Peter. Would you really put him in the seclusion room? I don't think he's dangerous. Bless your heart, Miss Jenny. You're new here. Still got them stars in your eyes, caring so much about these people. No, Peter's not dangerous, and I don't care diddly squat about regulations. I'm not putting any of ours in seclusion. This place is full of people nobody wants, and we store them because they don't have anywhere else to go. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. March 12, 1948. Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia, Finkler's Office, North Wing. The kid runs into the hallway without looking and smacks into Finkler. The young lad wears only white cotton briefs and a t-shirt. His buck-toothed mouth hangs open and he drools slime down the front of his shirt, which is already stained with jam from breakfast. The force of the impact knocks the child off balance and, as he tries to stand, Finkler kicks him hard in the buttocks. You're all the evidence I need to believe incest is alive and well. How did you get off the third floor anyway, you slippery little rodent? Figler has been intending to do something about this annoying urchin, and now is the perfect time. He grabs him roughly by the hair and drags him caveman style into his office. What's your name, boy? J-J-Jimmy? Tears stain the child's face and he rubs his ass cheek. For a rare instant, he makes eye contact with a man squeezing his shoulder. Jimmy appears to be unaware of his incapacities and it drives Finkler crazy that someone can exist carefree and ignorant of their plight. He will push this trash from his happy-go-lucky world and help him see the truth. Well, Jimmy, do you know right from wrong? Finkler mocks the child and takes off his belt, folding it in half and snaps it for effect. Jimmy apparently doesn't realize that this is not a game and he begins to laugh. Oh, Jimmy, now that was a mistake. Don't you ever laugh in my presence. It's disrespectful, and it makes me very angry. Figler grabs Jimmy by the back of the neck and lifts him in the air. An abnormal finger with an even longer fingernail hooks under the lip of the child's underwear and pulls them down. The first crack of the belt leaves a mark, and Jimmy cries out in pain. He looks confused like he has never been hit before and it appears he can't comprehend what is happening or why. Look at me. Finkler demands as the next smack cuts into Jimmy's bare bottom but the boy turns to the window instead. Help me. He mumbles and Finkler straps him again. Help me. He says louder this time still focused on the window and what lies beyond. Finkler loses control of his rage and he whips the child as hard as he can, using each strike as an exclamation mark between his words. You, smack, will, smack, learn, smack. The windows rattle, the glass shaking in the frame and breaking off layers of old paint. Frosty tentacles seep through the cracks and swirl around Finkler's neck, turning his head to see the wonders developing outside. Freaky weather is brewing, the likes of which Georgia has never seen, and a cyclone of snow smashes against the building. Sparks fly and an explosive bang momentarily illuminates a pole on the far side of the yard. 
The room plunges into darkness, and Jimmy runs for his life. Finkler bangs his knee on the side of his desk and swears a string of profanities. The storm roars as if offended by his language, and a quick succession of lightning strobes give the illusion of slow motion. On the second floor, the lunatics rage. Their screams fill his ears, ricocheting around in his skull. No longer in control of his environment, Finkler panics and frantically scans the room for options. His subconscious offers some advice. Move or die. 50,000 feet above, cold Arctic air streams in from the north at tremendous velocity and collides with a tropical storm moving out of the gulf. A hurricane-force blizzard ensues, blowing in over the expansive front lawn on a direct collision course with the asylum. Shingles peel and domino off one corner of the roof. An entire section lifts, hovering for an instant before ripping apart and scattering. The third-floor windows implode, blasting in a barrage of glass fragments and ice shards. In rooms along the hallway, locked-in patients pound on the doors, desperate to escape. Finkler stops in mid-stride and watches frost lines checkerboard over the window glass. He hears the splinter, louder than a glacier calving, and dives for the hall. Silence grips the room for a moment and a vacuum force extracts the air, suspending gravity for a heartbeat. The wall detonates, spreading wood and glass shrapnel. A snow shockwave follows and curls through the room, packing full any space it can find. The doctor moves on instinct, jumping over drifts and escaping the room before it's stuffed to the ceiling, entombing him and guaranteeing his suffocation. The storm pursues, flooding into the hallway and ping-ponging off the walls. The leaning gust forms into a giant white fist and rockets towards the back of Finkler's head for what will surely be a killing blow. He runs, arms flailing, legs thrashing, spastically awkward, but effective. Hell is approaching, and it's his turn to receive some corrective therapy. Friday, March 12, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia, Long Care Activity Room, South Wing. The lights flicker and snap off. Fluorescent tubes hum and glow a dim yellow before coming back on. Oh, no. Jimmy stops shuffling and his mouth drops open. He looks to the left and stares at a spot high on the ceiling as if an answer is there. Dorothy Gale, it's Dorothy Gale time and your little dog too. He spins in a tight circle, arms waving in the air, oblivious he has lost his stutter. What's the dog's name? I don't know. What's the dog's name? Who's on first? I can't remember. The tiny thread that keeps Jimmy in the present severs. He doesn't hear the approaching rumble, but he knows it has arrived all the same. The rain changes to snow and a thunderclap bursts directly above the institution, drowning out Jimmy's rant. Dust cascades from the lights and enough wind squeezes in from around the window frames to move the curtains. Victor's hands clench his ears, crushing the frames of his glasses. He squeezes his eyes shut and screams. Peter stands in the center of the room, vigorously scratching his arm and ducking his head to the left 
then the right, as if invisible seagulls were attacking. The storm takes a breath and the room falls silent. Best get back from the windows. If this thing's like 48, she's going to go a whole pile worse. Brody's weak voice quivers, but his words carry authority. The wind knocked out the power and broke glass. Snow came right inside and piled up in the hallway. Ginny, you asked about the storm. Well, let me tell you, it had a personality all its own, and Lord, was it angry. It attacked with a purpose of vengeance. Some of us were never the same afterward. Another thunderclap and the lights go out. A single emergency bulb over the doorway gives enough glow to navigate, and Jimmy shuffles over to the windows. The parking lot lights are out, probably most of Cartersville, too, and everything is black. He jumps up and down, claps his hand and squeals. The gang's all here now! Come back, Jimmy. You're too close. Ginny moves to rescue him, but a wrinkled hand grabs her arm and holds her firm. It's back, Ginny, and he's still angry. The wind chooses this exact moment to pick up speed, and it sounds like the prop of a helicopter. Farther down the room, a large branch crashes against the building. The glass holds, and the storm is kept out, for now. But what about Jimmy? He'll be all right. He was here with me the first time back in 48, and he has special connection with the beast. Something personal. Jeez, Brody, you talk like it's alive. Oh, don't fool yourself, Miss Jenny. It is. It surely is. And you need to know something about Jimmy. He's special. I know he's special. You're all special to me. I mean, he has some abilities, like an artistic savant. He can't handle simple arithmetic, but he knows fine details of every television sitcom and variety show. Happy Days is his favorite. He can recite entire episodes. I gathered that. There's other stuff, too. I think he summoned the storm, called it in to destroy this place, or at least destroy Finkler. You pulling my leg, Brody? No, ma'am. I was working in the front garden when his folks dropped him off. Said he could move things around, make his toys fly. They set him on the steps and nobody's seen them around here since. Little guy was only three or four. I've never seen him make anything fly. The sky flashes, lighting up the yard and giving them a brief glimpse of the blowing snow. Victor screams, and Ginny flinches, her reflexes on edge. Me neither. But I think it's because he lost the ability when he got older. He did make an old cat come back to life. Brody sits straighter, having gotten to the meat of his story. Now I definitely don't believe you. Ginny gives him a suspicious smile. It's true. Tri-colored little thing with oversized feet. I figured her mother must have made it with a lynx or bobcat to get paws that big. I don't think that's possible. No? Well, I guess not. Anyway, Jimmy took to her and snuck her treats and stuff. She hung around and he named her Pretty Patches on account of her coloring. I get it. Go on. Right. So, some stray dog gets a hold of the cat and shakes the living shit out of her. Broke her neck real quick. Poor Jim was traumatized, so I 
got a shoebox and take him out back behind the north wing and we bury her. Wouldn't you know it? Jimmy goes out there every day and he's talking to somebody. I thought maybe he was praying to Jesus, but no, that wasn't it. Come around a week later and the cat is following him down the hall. I knew right away something was wrong. Her hair was all clumpy, full of maggots and chunks missing. The one back leg was dragging along behind, but the worst was the poor creature's head down between her legs and nearly touched the floor. Now I know what you're thinking. It sounds like that pet cemetery story, but it wasn't anything like that. Jimmy did this thing, and he wasn't being evil or nothing. He just didn't know any better. Anyway, he took one look at me and started bawling, saying how sorry he was and begging me not to tell anyone. I made him promise to never do it again. Hell, I couldn't get too mad at him. He just missed his friend. That's all. I buried that damn cat again, and the second time I made sure she stayed dead. How'd you do that? Miss Jenny, you're a nice lady. It's best I don't tell you. Jenny, you keep listening to that old fool, and you'll end up with your own bed in this place. You need to remember the company you're keeping. Nurse Spinks shook her head and paused by the activity room door for a second before carrying on with her rounds. Yes, ma'am, Jenny lowers her voice. Now, Brody, how do you figure Jimmy is connected to the storm? That's an easy one. Finkler had his sights on him. Jimmy was a hyperactive kid back then, running around, shouting out nonsense, and it got on Finkler's nerves, distracted him from his research, you might say. I think Finkler was about to do something bad to Jim and, well, you know. You think Jimmy summoned up a beast? I think it's more like an apparition, a ghost. A killer ghost? Brody looks at her and slowly nods his head. March 12th, 1948. Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia. Front Lobby. Finkler fumbles with the keys, unlocks the reinforced security door, and slams it behind him. The snow fist, seconds late, splatters against the steel and the door holds. A sheet of ice squeezes out over the floor, stretching towards Finkler, threatening once again to entomb him, this time in a room-sized ice cube. Finkler's face burns from frost, his nose hairs freeze and split. The windows in the lobby explode in sequence as he passes, and snowdrifts break through the walls, slowing his progress. It comes from the sky, a rumbling thump, growing louder and louder. Chug, 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 chug. And then it explodes in a crescendo of noise. An icy phantom freight train thunders above, tearing off more pieces of roof. Finkler's ears concuss from the roar, and the storm calls his name, howling out a record of his atrocities and trying to find a foothold for guilt to tear away at his soul. Finkler! He gasps and chokes, his lungs trying to find oxygen in the frigid air. Louder now. Finkler! 
His mouth hangs open, his tongue pressed on his lower lip, asphyxiation squeezing his chest. Finally, a scream. Finkler! He makes a desperate lunge for the south wing hallway and the door slams shut behind him. The hallway is quiet, as if encased in a cone of silence, allowing him sanctuary from the polar beast and breathable air flows freely through his lungs, giving him a short reprieve. A thousand pinpricks tingle his numb feet and his legs move with the flexibility of wooden clubs. His hands are gnarled and scrunched, as if prematurely infected with arthritis, and he uses his hips to sway his legs, left, then right, compensating to keep moving. Crystals tinkle behind him. Hundreds of ice teeth burst out of the vents and swarm over the floor. More sinister than the plastic chattering toy and without the wind-up key, these have elongated jaws and sharp ice fangs. They bounce and jiggle along the floor, clicking and snapping. Hundreds growing to thousands, tumbling over each other, forming a rolling tsunami. They chew at Finkler's heels, tearing away niblets of flesh, and spring at his pant legs, determined to drag him down. He enters the infirmary and throws himself against the closing door, crushing a swath of biters into ice shavings. Followers leak through the small gap and resume the chase. The teeth flow in single file like a stream of army ants. Finkler plods along with his awkward leg-swinging gait, giving him an appropriate Frankenstein appearance. He stumbles through the room, bumping into carts and ignoring the cries of his patients, some already catching the interest of the ice teeth. The vengeful chatterbots span out and spread over the infirmary, climbing over beds and inspecting the occupants. Indifferent, the horde resumes its pursuit. Finkler, what do we do? Answer me. What are we to do? Nurse Kovach holds him by the shoulders and shakes him. Get your hands off me. Finkler pushes her to the ground and her head strikes the thick oak baseboard. Did he throw her too hard? Perhaps, but she blocked his path. The teeth swarm and bury her in a mound of crystal. Kovach's bright red blood spreads perfectly under the ice, turning the pile into sparkling ruby. Was the blood from her head smashing against the floor, or are the ice teeth biting her? Finkler doesn't have time to ponder, and he flees out the far door, closing in the biting pursuers. Back in the relative safety of the south wing hallway, he continues his escape. Friday, March 12, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Long-term care activity room, south wing. Too dark. Can't see, nurse. Can't, can't see. Who's on first? I don't know. Can't see. What's wrong, Jimmy? You afraid of the dark, old buddy? Big old boogeyman gonna get you? Peter hits himself in the forehead with his palm and shakes his head. He hits himself again, harder, and blinks. What are we gonna do now, Jim? We're staying right here for a spell, boys. Y'all pick a couch and sit quietly for me while I fetch some candles. Spinks touches her hair and straightens her dress, professional even during chaos. TV don't work, no TV. Bad news, bad news bears. I'm touched in the head. That's what they call it, Pete. Touched in the head. That's me, cuckoo bananas. Jenny finds the only man who has any answers and pulls a chair up close. 
Can I ask you something else, Brody? Why was this place so evil? These operations on the patients and all the amputations, how was it all allowed to happen? Be careful, Jenny. You're going down a slippery slope. You best not be getting everyone all riled up. The truth ought to be left in the past, especially round present company. Spinks fidgets with her dress buttons and shifts her weight between her feet. I blame Finkler. You see, he was a doctor, all right, seen the papers myself, framed up on his wall. But he was no psychiatrist. Brody takes a sip of water. That all came out in the trial. I can read, you know. Ain't too hard to get your hands on a newspaper in this joint, even back in the day. Spinks shot him a nervous glance. Don't fret, Miss Spinks. I won't be telling nothing that shouldn't be told. My take on it is the man caught a fever. Reminded me of a prospector who finds a little gold and loses his mind trying to find more. Finkler did them experiments and surgeries. Thought he was on to a big discovery and it went to his head. He got full of himself, insisting there was a connection between infections and insanity. I don't recall all the doctoring stuff. But it was something about poisons in the blood attacking your brain and causing you to go nuts. Something should have been done. Somebody should have stopped him. Jenny's voice quavered between sorrow and rage. Sweet baby Jesus, Jenny. Y'all still don't understand. Nobody cares what happened in here. Not back then, not even now. They send us the people nobody wants. Embarrassments and inconveniences. They don't want to deal with them. They would prefer to forget. Nurse Spinks puts her hands on her hips and blows a stray wisp of hair off her face. All I know for sure is most people didn't ever leave. They died here. You ladies can check the records. Field behind the north wing is filled up with unmarked graves, hundreds of them. I know. I buried most of them myself. It was my job. Brody slouches further back in his chair. March 12, 1948. Birmingham Lunatic Asylum, Cartersville, Georgia, South Wing. Doors slam shut and lock in sequence, preceding Finkler as he makes his way down the hall. He lumbers through a blustering kaleidoscope of snow, each step an effort as he struggles against the forces trying to restrain him. Another door closes with a crash and a beast roars close behind. Wind pulls on his hair and ice tips highlight the wisps that soon will become rigid as straw. Patches of red, frost-burned cheeks peek through the white glaze covering his face, but he no longer feels the burn. Phantom fish hooks strike his back, trying to find purchase, and with each miss they become larger. Finkler's stiff Frankenstein legs stumble to a stop and he finds an unlocked room. He forces open his eyelids, breaking through their bitter cold, and hobbles into the staff lounge. A child, wearing only pea-stained tidy-whitey underwear, stands on the couch with his face tilted back, fixated on the plaster above. He mumbles something about eating the feast and becoming the beast. Oh, it's you again. Finkler looks around the room for a nurse, an orderly, anyone to scold. 
Protocol, Nurse Kovach. Protocol. What the hell is this? This vermin doing here? He spits out the words and his dribble freezes on his lips. This area is off limits to patients. Off limits. Off limits. Off limits. Finkler stumbles through the room, knocking into a chair and shoving it out of the way. Kovach, now looking more like a strawberry popsicle, is frozen to the floor back in the infirmary and is no help to him. Cuckoo bananas! Bad man's gone! Cuckoo bananas! Duck, duck, goose! Bad man's on the loose! Looney tunes! Jimmy jumps around the couch, bouncing up and down, not realizing the rage bearing down on him. He doesn't appear to be cold, and he's too innocent to be afraid. What did you say? You, you insubordinate ingrate! Finkler's face turns a darker shade of red, and the last of his spittle sticks to his lips, fusing them together. He slides a forearm around the child's neck and pulls him up in a headlock. Jimmy's scrawny legs dangle in the air and his expression changes. Although they are not in an ideal surgical environment, a lobotomy is the appropriate diagnosis to deal with this troublesome annoyance. Finkler grabs a pencil and tries to line up an orbital strike, but Jimmy squeezes his eyes shut, unknowingly buying a few precious seconds. A growl rumbles louder and louder, turning into a howl and then a scream. The room's large double window is sucked into the night and spins away, frame and all, the glass still intact. Something dark and fast-moving enters and curls through the room, dancing and twisting into a miniature tornado. It revolves around the doctor, pulling at his clothes and distracting him. Finkler releases his hold and Jimmy scrambles away, giggling and waddling like a baby duck, trying to keep up with its mother. Finkler swats the spinning pest and the wind wraps around his arm, throwing him into the wall. His head snaps back and he slides to the floor. Friday, March 12th, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Long-term care activity room, South Wing. Night of the storm, he had some kind of breakdown. Killed a nurse in the infirmary. I found him unconscious, lying in the snow. Ironic, isn't it? After the trial, they sent him back here, gave him a different name, and I knew who he was. You don't go for getting a prick like Finkler, especially after he takes your eye. They kept him in isolation all these years, said it was for his own protection. I reckon they were right about that. I think I might have done him myself when I was younger. Now I don't give a rat's ass. What are you saying, Brody? Are you trying to tell me that Finkler's still alive and that he's in here? I'm trying to tell you that Finkler thinks the storm came for him. He said some kind of snow monster chased him around, breaking windows and tossing stuff around. I think I believe him, and I think it's come back to finish him off. Jenny, y'all remember now who you're talking to. Spinks is growing increasingly irritated with all the chitter-chatter. She was barely born in 48, but she knows no more than she's letting on. Brody isn't in here for no reason. Well, that isn't exactly true. Back in the 20s, I was a big wheeler-dealer, and I made lots of fast money. 
Spin it just as quick, lost my girlfriend. Hell, I lost my friends, went sort of into a slump. My doctor suggested get some rest, gave me the address for this place. I figured it was some kind of country spa. They drugged me up within minutes of walking through the front door, kept me stoned for the next dozen years or so, and by the time they stopped, I didn't really care anymore. You see, Jenny, unless you have someone on the outside, greasing palms and advocating for your release, nobody gets out. Surely you could go now. Yes, maybe, but where would I go? An old man stuck in his wheelchair. No family, no home, no money. No thanks. I'd rather stay right here. At least I have you to entertain me. I think you're the one who's doing the entertaining with these silly notions that a storm is a monster in disguise and a Finkler has somehow been hiding in plain sight right under our noses. Should have figured you wouldn't believe me. You best take me down to the North Wing, room 118, and bring Jimmy along. He'll want to see this. Jimmy is heard enough to be suspicious, and her anger boils. Is this true, Miss Spinks? Have we been keeping the sadistic son of a bitch safe and comfortable all these years? Y'all need to keep quiet about this, Jenny. I'm telling you. I don't know anything, and it's best you don't either. Spinks puts a hand on Jenny's wrist and holds her. Some things you can't unsee. Let go of me. Don't you go causing no ruckus now, and don't be too long. It's starting to blow awful hard out there. Nurse Spinks, for once disheveled, wrings her hand subconsciously imitating Victor. Friday, March 12th, 1993. Birmingham Mental Health Institute, Cartersville, Georgia. Isolation Room 118. J. Gallagher. The room is tiny and a single light casts a blue shade on the walls. A small bed rests exactly in the center and a skinny old man stirs under a white sheet. His feet hang out the bottom. There is no other furniture in the room, but a window provides a nice view of the storm and newly snow-covered gardens. Jenny takes note that there are no bars on the windows and she snorts. Jimmy slips to the front to get a good look. There he is, Jimbo. Buford Raymond Finkler. You remember this prick? No, Brody. That's Joseph Gallagher. Jenny corrects him. Joseph now, yes, but he was Finkler. I told you they changed his name when they committed him. The old man raises his head and points a bony finger. Get the hell out of my room. His hand shakes and his wild eyes scan the faces of his visitors. He stops on Jimmy. Well, if it is no piss stains, you're still wetting the bed, Jimmy. By the smell of you, I say you are. He's missing some teeth and the hateful words come out with a lisp. Jimmy stops shuffling and grabs Jenny's arm. He holds on too tight and leaves white finger marks. What's wrong, Jim? She asks. Finkler. For a moment, he holds rare eye contact with the nurse, suddenly awake and alert to the world around him. The noise from outside pierces the walls, whistling, screeching, howling. The sounds are personified, and it is easy to believe the storm is indeed a beast. 
chunks of ice smack against the wall, making an earring knocking sound, and Jimmy moves to investigate. He tries to push on the window, but the wood is old and warped and it resists. He tries again, and this time he places his hands on the glass and closes his eyes. A gust of frigid air works its way under the bottom and icy fingers pry on the frame, instantly slamming it open. Intense arctic air blows in and swirls around the bed. The burning cold pinches skin and shortens breath. He looks at Ginny with sad eyes, perhaps afraid of what he has done, and struggles to hold back the tears. He hurt me, Ginny. He hurt me real bad. I know, baby. You go on now. Wait for me in the hall. Nurse Jenny has got this. Finkler's eyes close and he pretends he's sleeping. You think I'm going to help you? I'm not because I believe all the stories about your atrocities. I also believe, deep inside your sick mind, you still think you're right. I bet you're even proud of yourself. His mouth opens wide and he grunts. An ice cord spins around his neck and he's unable to form a word. Jenny smiles and slowly makes her way towards the door. The wind roars through the window and snow forms a vortex. Jenny needs to shout now to be heard. You got away with this because no one cares. Well, I care, Mr. Finkler. I may be young and I may be naive, but I can't stand by while monsters like you are allowed to survive, even if it's only for the difference of a few days. Finkler's gaze follows her as she paces around his bed and his eyes widen. The confused, half-asleep stare is gone and he must realize the danger he is in. He strains to sit up and he tries to scratch her before she is out of range. The noose around his neck tightens and a gust of snow forms into a heavy chain that quickly binds the old man to his mattress. His face is already blue and frost is growing on his cheeks. Finkler, you bastard. I have no idea how you managed to open that window, but you best close it soon. Jenny pulls the door shut and leads Jimmy back to his room. She holds his hand to comfort the little boy trapped inside. That was Dan Allen's Finkler, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his latest narration, Ancient Enemies, by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter at Voices of Brian. Thank you, Brian. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Become a Patreon supporter, and you'll have access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and all kinds of creepy goodies. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can still support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to terrify.com. 
And if you have a minute, we would so appreciate if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews and ratings are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we follow the trailing darkness in search of more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.